He says this Supreme Court term is the most important in a quarter century for religious liberty, conscience, and the defense of life. Do you agree? Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. Uh, the very best way to keep track of our conversations here on First Liberty Live is to go to firstlibertylive.com, look for the subscribe button, and we will send you a note every time a new episode comes out so that you know when they're coming out. So just go to firstlibertylive.com and click subscribe. You won't miss a thing if you do that. My friend Tim Gagline worked in the George W. Bush White House. His primary job was reaching out to faith-based groups from, from his office there. For the past decade plus, he's been working with Focus on the Family. Uh, they're, of course, in Colorado Springs, but you're based in Washington, D.C., where you help them keep track of what people are talking about in Washington. He's also written a couple of books the most recent of which is called American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. Hi, Tim. It's nice to see you, Stuart. I'm really honored to be a part of the program. Oh, it's great to have you here. It's always good to talk to you. I always learn Thank something you. when I talk to you, so always, I'm glad when you're around. Right now, everybody in Washington is talking about President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. Yes. You're there. You're hearing a lot of the conversations that are going on. I know you've been watching it closely. What do we need to know about what's going on with that? I think we need to know three things. Okay. The first thing we need to know uh, is that on the domestic side, for any president of either party, the most important thing that they do with the longest lasting impact is their Supreme Court nominees and their federal judicial nominees. Absolutely. That's, that's first. Yeah. Secondly, in this specific case, uh, you know, Judge Brown Jackson, She's 51 years old. She clerked for the retiring uh, Justice Breyer. He's 83. If she serves at the age of 51 uh, up to the age of 83, like her mentor, she will be on this court until 2054. Wow. That gives us a sense of things, doesn't it? It really does. Yes, and, and the third thing is the following. Uh, when Justice Breyer steps down, the oldest uh, uh, sitting Supreme Court uh, you know, justice will be Clarence Thomas. Whom I love. He's terrific. I think yeah. he's our greatest statesman. And he is uh, 73. And so I think what we have to uh, internalize, uh, Stuart, is that we are facing soon the changing of the guard. We, we want Justice Thomas uh, to live to be 500 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in, in the real world, uh, we also have uh, Justice Alito. Uh, a very reliable originalist, a yeah. constitutionalist, uh, you know, who is in his 70s. So I mention these three things because in light of a new Supreme Court justice coming on board, uh, in light of the older guard in their early 70s, I think what we realize is that elections have consequences and that whether you're left or right, uh, we are coming up to yet another inflection point on the Supreme Court. At, at least for the short term, as we look at the court, it's divided and you use the proper terminology, which I appreciate. We have six that in the, in the general nomenclature people would say are conservative, but that's not really the right word for it. It's originalist, constitutionalist, a textualist. Yes. Someone who looks at the Constitution and says that's the measure. The other three say our job is to fix the Constitution. One way or another, it doesn't quite get it right, and we need to reimagine the Constitution, rejigger it to get it to do what we want. Among those three, Stephen Breyer, my impression is, is closer to, the, to being more of a moderate, uh, still a liberal justice. I don't want to overstate it. 
But uh, Justice Brown Jackson, if she is uh, confirmed uh, by the Senate, she's not going to fill that seat. She's going to end up somewhere else. Where do you see her landing on the court in the balance of things? I believe, based on what we have learned in the hearings and by what we have learned about her background, that we are facing a uh, very rigorous judicial activist. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting to me, a Stewart in Washington, where uh, uh, several people on the left and several people on the right say, well, it doesn't really change the balance of the court much. And what they mean by that is that she's uh, you know, a liberal, as they say, yeah. and that she is uh, you know, replacing a liberal. I, I don't think that is the right calculus. Because it's not a one-for-one one this time around. It, it, it really is not. I think that in 21st century America, we are far beyond the moorings of what our founding fathers and, frankly, founding mothers envisioned for the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, the court uh, writes opinions uh, and so forth. But the court does something now in the time that we live in, which is really new, which is that Supreme Court justices are not only national figures, they are global figures. Hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, the late uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, far beyond writing, what, 40 opinions a year, she became a kind of cultural icon for American progressives. The notorious RGB, they called her, or yeah. RBG, they it's, called It's her. very interesting. I'm giving one example. Uh, the, the, the late justice really was a person who loved the fine arts. And when she would go to the Kennedy Center in Washington, say for the opera, you would have the entire audience in the opera house stand up when she entered to be a part of the audience. Huh. Now, there was a time in America when uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of the American people could not name a single Supreme Court justice. Why have they become so well known? Some want to say it's because they're particularly eloquent writers. Some say it's because we live in a more ubiquitous media climate. And I think those things can be true. Uh, but I think there's another reason. And I think it's the one that we're getting at uh, in our discussion today. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Which, which, is that, which is that Supreme Court justices have become uh, influential figures beyond public policy, beyond so-called politics. They have become cultural barometers. And I think that this potential new Supreme Court justice will fit precisely in to the, to the progressive constellation. There, there's something about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg that, that many people don't know. It, it's commonly been shared, but it's good to remind. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, who was, by all accounts, competing with Clarence Thomas to be the most conservative jurist, the, most, uh, the closest to sticking to the Constitution, was a good friend of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And when you talk about the opera, they would go to the opera together. They'd go bowling together. They went to Africa together. Yes. Even though they had completely disparate views of the law and the Constitution, right. they still managed to find a friendship. Culturally, we're losing that ability is what I'm seeing happening right now. Do you agree? You know, I, I have to say, there was, I, I worked for 10 years in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and I knew multiple members of the Senate, left and right, uh, who were always dedicated to civility, to magnanimity, to grace. Uh, they would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, yep. uh, even if they profoundly disagreed on the major issues of the day. And the wonderful thing about the friendship between Justice Scalia, the late great Justice Scalia, and the late uh, Ruth Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, 
was that even though they disagreed strongly on the major cases of our time, as Justice Ginsburg said in her beautiful and eloquent uh, eulogy to her friend Justice Scalia, she said the reason in part that we were such good friends over all those years is that we attacked each other's ideas. We did not attack each other's persons or character. And so it's my view that even in this highly polarized, toxic time that we find ourselves in, that at some remove, on the Supreme Court and with certain members of the House and Senate, that that kind of magnanimity and grace can still be shepherded and be championed. And I, 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 I'm hopeful uh, that, that, that that can be the case, even in the era in which we live. I think for our nation to work the way it's designed to work, we've got to have that kind of ability we do. To, to converse with, yes. to debate with, to deliberate with people who strongly disagree with us and still maintain a, an honest personal connection, not an insincere one, but an yes. honest connection with them. It's so important. Uh, it's not only important, but I think it's, it's kind of baked into the cake uh, you know, of a constitutional republic, yeah. that we have an, an institutional way to disagree agreeably. I think this is one of the great achievements in the American experience. And I, and I do, Stuart, I really am. I'm very hopeful because there are people of goodwill uh, you know, who, who are in uh, the public eye who I think would be very comfortable you know, in a conversation like this. And, 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 and the irony, the great irony, is that in the overwhelming majority of cases that come to the Supreme Court, uh, you know, there, there, there is not this kind of ideological polarization that we're talking about. It's really not, yeah. yeah. Statistically, that's true, because most decisions right. are 7 2 8 one or 9 oh. That's People correct. don't know that, but statistically, it's true. And, and this is the genius of the drafting of the Constitution, which is that the Constitution is a written document and the words have a fixed meaning, right? The words mean objectively what they mean, what they say. Uh, and by the way, it is remarkable how many people uh, have never read the Constitution. It's actually quite short, uh, and it's actually very easy to understand. And I think that on these uh, limited number of highly polarizing decisions, if people of goodwill uh, who are in the progressive camp, in the living Constitution camp, if they would be willing to concede that words have objectively true meanings, right, they would come to see that I think that, that, that the arguments that constitutionalists make uh, are not made up out of whole cloth, uh, they're not rooted in ideology, they are consistent with the words of the Constitution and therefore consistent with the meaning of the application, the practical application of the Constitution. And you've hit on something. Over the last week, we've seen a lot of memes in social media and people posting about the fact that the Supreme Court nominee would not answer the question, what's the definition of a woman? I think that most of the comments that I saw completely missed the point. Because the point is what you were just pointing out, and that is all laws are written with words. And if we can't agree on what the words mean, then the law is meaningless. Yes. It loses all meaning. It can be whatever you want it to be. May I tell you, if we were not on this uh, great conversation, right, if we were not talking about the Supreme Court, we were talking about you know, some other topic, let's yeah. say, right, I think if you were to ask me, right, uh, far beyond public policy, right, what is the toxin that is driving 
so much of the polarization that, that is at the heart of this, of this dialogue, yeah. I would say it is a form of moral relativism. I think moral relativism is the cancer of our time. I might say it another way. I think that truth is the great casualty of our age. Uh, you know, if we cannot, as people of goodwill, left and right, agree objectively, right, that there is an objective truth, right, that there is a practical application in the public square yeah. of objective truth, if, if we can agree on that, I think that we can look at this chasm in public life in America, which is very often cultural before it is political. And we can say that's the common ground where we can stand. So you know, I, I, I'm hopeful, genuinely hopeful, that people of goodwill who may not agree with those of us who are constitutionalists, right, that people of goodwill will at least hear and listen to our arguments and then ask, is there a practical way objectively that we can apply that in these debates? And I think that, 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 that it's a healthy sign when we drive uh, public discourse in that regard. Right now, First Liberty Institute uh, has three matters at the Supreme Court. This is an unusual time in the life of the organization. We didn't see it coming. God decided it was time for us to, to be engaged like this, and we're grateful for his providence. He must think that, that this is the, the group to bring these three. Uh, one has already been heard uh, back in December. We're waiting on a decision. That's out of Maine, a school choice case. The Coach Joe Kennedy case, the coach who was fired after saying a quiet personal prayer on the 50-yard line by himself, right. uh, that finally, after years, is going to be heard at the Supreme Court very shortly. In fact, in April, we'll be taking First Liberty Live to D.C. We'll be talking to Paul Clement, who's mm -hmm. the most experienced attorney ever to, to take cases to the Supreme Court. He's argued more than 100. We're going to talk to him along with uh, Kelly Shackelford there. Then we'll be uh, back in D.C. shortly after that. April 25th is the court date for Coach Kennedy. You say this term is the most important in the last 25 years. Yes. Why is that? I think you've outlined, uh, if I may say brilliantly, why it is. Uh, the Coach Kennedy case is about far more, you know, than a coach praying by himself. It surely is. Right. And, and I think that, that people, again, left and right understand that. You know, this goes to the very heart of religious liberty and the protection of conscience. You know, it was the, the primary author of our Constitution uh, is James Madison, who's also President of the United States. And, and Madison said that the most important property right, right, is conscience. Hmm. He wasn't talking about real estate. Yeah. He was talking about, about the cornerstone of our Constitution. I mean, think about that. The primary architect and author of our Constitution said conscience is the most important. I, I mean, Unpack that for us. What does that mean? I, I think what it means is the following, that, that no government can compel you or me to violate our most deeply held moral and religious principles. This is, this is inherently baked into the cake of the genius of the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. And this case, as you say, is a first liberty case. It is the premier case uh, in the spring term of the Supreme Court. And it turns not just on the question of religious liberty, it turns uh, ultimately on the question of conscience. I think this is a Madisonian case. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the, the case in Maine. 
mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and you know, how can taxpayer money constitutionally, morally, legally, ethically, how can it be applied uh, you know, to so-called religious or faith-based uh, education? Uh, I, I feel very confident that the Supreme Court is going to get this case right. Bosh, this is in the same term as the, as the Kennedy case. Yeah. This is very important. There are other cases that you haven't mentioned. Uh, we have a, another case out of New England, uh, you know, a, a, a Boston uh, case, yeah. uh, very important uh, religious uh, liberty case. Uh, coming down the road, uh, we have a case that is uh, rooted in, uh, in, in the question of, of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina admissions process. This is a very, very important case probably will be the early part of next term, but it's already been accepted by the Supreme Court. Uh, and so I, my, my sense, strongly held, uh, is that uh, when you uh, look at these uh, admixture of cases for religious liberty and conscience, uh, you realize that the court is no longer uh, saying, uh, you know, kind of almost predictably, no to conscience cases or no to religious liberty cases because they may be, in air quotation marks, you know, uh, too uh, controversial. Uh, I think rightfully they are accepting these cases, and I feel uh, confident uh, that the right side is going to prevail. So I think it's very important, and it's happening all in this term. Kelly Shackelford, uh, my boss, has said many times now uh, in front of groups of people that we are about to have more religious freedom restored to us than yes. any of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. Yes. Things are on the precipice of changing in ways that we just can't even imagine. I, I, I think Kelly is exactly uh, right, pinpoint accurate. Uh, and we also, uh, to, to Kelly's point, marrying the cases I've talked about and then looking a little bit over the next mountain, right? In the next term, we have other major religious liberty conscience cases uh, that I think are going to buttress uh, what First Liberty Institute is doing successfully. And uh, when you look at these uh, contiguously, what you conclude is that, wow, for the first time in the last quarter century, you know, within one or two terms of each other, there is reason to be extremely hopeful, maybe more than uh, you know, in the last uh, 50 years, quite frankly, uh, about religious liberty and the fate of religious liberty in the United States. So I'm, I feel confident. So you've covered religious liberty and conscience. Yes. Uh, the third that you mentioned is innocent life. Unpack that for us. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the so-called Dobbs case, mm -hmm. which arises from the state of Mississippi, can a state constitutionally ban uh, abortion after 15 weeks? I think demonstrably the answer is that it can. And I think we're going to prevail on that question in the Supreme Court in this term. Relatedly uh, is the Texas heartbeat uh, bill, you know, uh, using a bit of an unconventional method, right, but still fully constitutional. Uh, you know, what about uh, heartbeat after six weeks? Is that constitutional? Uh, we're going to learn uh, in this term whether that's the case. The overriding question is not necessarily, if I may say, the overturning of Roe against Wade. I pray that will happen. Or the upholding of, uh, of the Dobbs case. I think it's a victory under either one of those rubrics. I mean, we uh, who are constitutionalists, we have to learn to be patient. It sometimes takes a while. Yeah. But, and this is what I think is so crucial, built into Roe against Wade, 
right? This infamous case that has given us 65 million abortions since 1973. Ultimately, Stuart, ultimately, it rides again on the question of conscience. And how we understand the Constitution. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, that, that the way that we understand the Constitution is categorically simpatico with the way that First Liberty Institute uh, thinks about healthy jurisprudence and what is possible uh, in the 21st century. You know, I, I'm, I'm very much uh, very comfortable. Uh, you know, what, what is politics? You know, politics is a branch of ethics, but it's also healthily applied uh, what is possible. And I think uh, that we as, as conservatives, above all as Christians, we have to apply uh, a bit of a, of a practical rubric to public policy and say, not what do we want. I think we're pretty clear about that. I hope we are. Yeah. But what is possible in the time in which we live? And I think right now, for religious liberty and for conscience, across the cases we've spoken about, about cases that are coming, and quite frankly, cases that will come soon, I think, in the Supreme Court, I think there is good basis to be optimistic. Now, as we look at these cases, if, if they start coming down victory upon victory mm -hmm. upon victory, there's another conversation that's going to be happening, happening in Washington, D.C. It was hinted at about a year ago. It's kind of died down a bit now, but it will immediately come back uh, with heat. And that is the idea of court packing, yes. the idea of adding more justices to the Supreme Court beyond the nine that are there now to unsettle the balance yes. of it. Do you see that coming to I you? do. I do. And may I say, uh, in the hearings <clears throat> with uh, Judge Brown Jackson, she had ample opportunity to let people know that court packing was not a good idea. Uh, and she found uh, kind of a, a, a clever way, right, to try to, I think, rhetorically protect the integrity of the institution at some level, because we, we certainly want that from any Supreme Court justice. There's yeah. only nine, right? Yeah. But she had opportunity to negate the idea of court packing, and she didn't do it. And I think that that should be very sobering uh, to a lot of us. To, to merely say, uh, I could be a justice, and therefore I ought not to you know, give you my view in this regard, that can work in a lot of ways. But this is not a case before the Supreme Court, uh, and it is a it is a very probable reality uh, given the balance of how uh, progressives would or would do not dominate the House and Senate and what they want in the future. Four voices that have spoken out against court packing that it's good for all of us to remember yes. and share with our friends. <clears throat> One was the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg yes. on the left. Stephen Breyer on the left, yes. Amy Coney Barrett on the right, and Clarence Thomas on the right just recently reiterated his opposition right. to it. So there you have two of the bright lights on both sides of the, of the bench, yes. all arguing for the same thing. That is a sign that America should not miss. Uh, not only should America not miss that sign, but I think that going forward, I think we have to be on our guard. Uh, that simply because a presidentially appointed commission in the short term uh, does or does not choose to say what, what, what it thinks about court packing, okay, um, should, 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 I think, teach us, right, that these kind of commissions are a dime a dozen and they're fairly brittle. Uh, I don't think they have any application uh, over the short, medium, or long term. 
uh, American progressives are categorically committed to packing the Supreme Court. They want to expand the court, and they want to apply a leftist ideology uh, into the very DNA of the United States Supreme Court. And may I say, uh, Stuart, I think they are on board to, to do the exact same thing to our circuit and appellate uh, um, uh, judges. They've certainly talked about it. They yeah. have, and, and I think at the district level. So, you know, nobody can say nobody warned you. Uh, I think this is the trajectory we are on. Okay, you've been in Washington for a long time. You've seen it from the inside. You've had conversations that you can't tell us about uh, because of the people that you get to talk to and the conversations you get to have. Are you a pessimist or an optimist about the future from here? I am overwhelmingly uh, a, a, an inveterate optimist. I'm a Christian, so ultimately I'm a hopefulist, right? But I believe uh, strongly that when it comes to the public policy process, that the American people are overwhelmingly center-right. Uh, I think that, uh, that uh, in the world of what I call kitchen sink uh, you know, common sense, that when you talk with the American people about people like Coach Kennedy, mm -hmm. when you talk with the American people uh, about uh, the main case and whether parents should be able to decide you know, how they educate and, uh, and fund the education of their children, when you talk to the American people right, about do we want the destruction of 65 million innocent preborn children, when you talk to the American people about a host of issues what you find is that overwhelmingly, they are totally in sync with the ideas that animate our founding generation. I still think that the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights are highly regarded by the American people. And I believe that if we will take the time winsomely, civilly, diplomatically, I pray magnanimously, to share our views and to demonstrate why our views lead to the kind of America that is healthy and good for everybody, regardless of your views, I think the American people will come along. And I think, I think I'm, a, I'm a Reaganite, and I think Ronald Reagan showed that a combination of relentless good cheer, right, <laughs> gratitude and humility, routinely exercised in the public square, gives you a healthy constitutional republic. So, also, I, I'm, so I feel confident. He also said, trust but verify. So <laughs> He did. He did, and he was right. Yeah. And I, I think long years later, we realized that when you have a statesman uh, in the Oval Office, you realize that it's not just a benefit in the, in the time that they're there, but for many years to come. And I might say, I believe that our greatest living American statesman is Clarence Thomas. I believe that uh, you know, 31 years on the Supreme Court uh, through uh, remarkable dissents and uh, a kind of conviction and commitment to the permanent things uh, has uh, set him in very good stead. And I think it is probable uh, that in the history of the United States Supreme Court, uh, we have rarely, if ever, had a justice of greater character and integrity, but also a justice who has, with more fidelity, actually lived the experience of the application of the Constitution. And I think that, uh, that this kind of statesmanship uh, should uh, give uh, those of us who are honored to be Americans 
uh, a great sense of gratitude. Well put. Tim Gagline, always good chatting with you. A pleasure. Good to see your face. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for making time for us. If these issues resonate with you, may I ask you something? Would you please consider supporting the work of First Liberty Institute? As you heard us just detailing, uh, this is literally the busiest, highest level time in the history of this organization. Uh, we had our case involving the OSHA mandate uh, go all the way up to the Supreme Court. We, we had, were waiting on the decision in the main school choice case. Uh, Joe Kennedy, uh, Coach Kennedy's case is coming up next month. We have never been this busy at this high level in the history of the organization. And uh, we're thankful that God has chosen to let us be a tool to take care of these things. But the only way we're able to do this, and this is key, none of the folks that I just mentioned will ever get a bill from us. Uh, that's our model. We don't charge our clients anything to represent them. We are only able to do that because of the steadfast and considerate donations of people like you who care about this as much as we do. So if this resonates with you, please look for the big red Give button at the top of FirstLibertyLive.com. Click on that. Let me just say thank you in advance for supporting the work we do. Uh, it makes a difference at a very high level, and we are grateful. We will see you next week right here on First Liberty Live.